let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Joshua. It's been four weeks since we've crossed the river and we've been doing nothing since. Just sitting there waiting to see what the Lord would call us to do. So we come back to this wonderful book of Joshua. And may I simply remind you from the last part of chapter 4, these amazing words that the Lord Almighty took his people on dry ground through the bank, the riverbed of the Jordan River. He dried up the Jordan before them and they crossed over. This is chapter 4, verse 23. And the Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. How encouraging that must have been. Although these people did not witness it, except for a couple like Joshua and Caleb, they had heard the stories from their parents. And now to know that God was with them as he was with Moses. And that God would do some of the same amazing miracles must have been of great encouragement to them. Verse 24 of chapter 4. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. That, that is that you would have reverence for him. Remember that song we used to sing, Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things called impossible. He does the things no one else can do. And that's one of the great things we need to learn in this story is that our God is with us and our God is powerful. And because of that, we should fear, reverence, bow before him. And so Joshua could remember back as he was on the other side, this amazing miracle where the gleaming ark of gold stood in the middle of the river and the waters walled up miles apart and hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people walking across with shouts of joy and then the thunderous sound of the flooding of the Jordan coming back and overflowing its banks and they were on dry ground on the other side. There's no retreat now. They're in the enemy's territory. But notice how the enemy responded. Now we go to chapter 5 and verse 1. When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over. And so uh, maybe this is Joshua's writing or his dictation to a, a secretary, someone who is recording it, who is part of the event. Until we crossed over, their hearts, the king's hearts, melted in fear and they could no longer, they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And so like in Jericho, they were in walled up cities and found to be hiding, afraid of what God's people would do. So God's people are fearing God and the people in the land are fearing God as well. This is the perfect time to fight them, isn't it? You've got them on their heels. You've got them on the run. Let's take it to them. But there's more important business to attend to, chapter 5 tells us. Before they actually get into the battle of Jericho, which is chapter 6, there's more important business. 
On Wednesday night, as we finished our great missions conference, and I hope you had an opportunity to be part of it, it was, it was superb. And on Wednesday night, Dr. Brent Slater uh, was speaking, but prior to that, we had a panel discussion with some of our own missionaries and asked them multiple questions. And uh, some of those missionaries, three in particular, were kind of at the end of their uh, ministry life, and they were transitioning, some stepping down, some retiring. And the question was, what would you tell your younger self uh, if you were able to give them wisdom from this vantage point at the end of your ministry. And several excellent things were said, but everyone seemed to agree on this. Don't neglect your own personal quiet time with the Lord. Don't neglect your own walk with Christ. That's the foundation upon which we do everything else. This is what I heard. In doing your master's business, don't neglect your master. There are many Marthas who quickly are willing to serve Jesus, but few Marys who are quickly willing to sit at the feet of Jesus, which really should come before the serving. And now they're in Canaanite territory, get this, for the first time in four centuries. They could have gotten there much quicker, but remember when the spies were first sent into the land of Canaan, they came back with a bad report, and so there was 40 years of wandering. But the promise given to Abraham was centuries old, and Jacob took his 11 sons down to Egypt because of the famine, and now for the first time, back in this land, and they make the city of Gilgal, about seven miles uh, across the Jordan, their military headquarters for the Canaan campaign. It's going to be the place from which they operate all of their military enterprise. Gilgal is going to be the first place, the, the, the town where the first king is going to be crowned. And later in the history of Israel, unfortunately, Gilgal is going to become the notorious site of idolatry. And the place where it is announced that Israel will lose the promised land and go into bondage. So what's more important business than taking the fight to the enemy? And it is simply this. It's time for the covenant to be renewed. Someone's behind on the slides because I'm doing the slides this morning. So we already went over Joshua 4. And now we have the covenant renewed, and the early part of chapter 5 is the reinstitution of the practice of circumcision. This is a public renewal of the covenant. The covenant of circumcision was given to Abraham to acknowledge that he indeed was God's child and his descendants God's people. They had not practiced circumcision for 40 years. Everyone who came out of Egypt, all the military men, men of the nation were circumcised, but no one had been circumcised during the years of wandering. We read about that from verse 2 all the way through verse 9. And the reason seems to be sheer disobedience. They were on the run, and they didn't take time to obey the Lord. Oh, there is in a 
in the book of Deuteronomy a couple times the reference to circumcising their hearts, which is really what the outward act is supposed to reflect. A heart dedicated to God. Circumcision is a token of the covenant. But now all the people who came out of Egypt who had been circumcised, died, and all the people born during the wilderness days had not been, and so they reinstituted circumcision. Now look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That took 40 years. So the place was called Gilgal, which sounds like the Hebrew word to roll away. Sins forgiven. A renewed relationship with their covenant God. But that's not all. To renew the covenant, they also wanted to practice the wonderful ritual of the Passover. So on the evening of the 14th day of the month, verse 10 tells us, while camped at Gilgal, only about two miles away from Jericho, in the flatlands, the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. They celebrated the Passover going out of Egypt, right? The death of the firstborn, that's what they did going out. And now they celebrate the Passover once they're in. Which, by the way, is exactly what the Lord told them to do in Exodus 12, 25. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony of Passover. So now they're clicking. Now they're tracking. Now they're following him and obeying him. By the way, it's interesting that uh, we're told that they entered or crossed the Jordan River. This is chapter 4, verse 19, on the 10th day of the first month. And in chapter 5, verse 10, they celebrate Passover on the 14th day of the first month, which is exactly the calendar times in which Passover was given. God chose the very same day for the Hebrew people to enter Canaan as the very time when they left Egypt celebrating the same solemn service that God has protected you by the death of the Lamb. And whether they made the connection or not, we can look back and see that the scarlet cord hanging from Rahab's window was also a witness to the blood that protects. God wants us to remember his great acts of redemption. Remembering promotes spiritual health. That's why there were 12 stones, both in the river and on the new shore, to remind them what God had done for the entire nation. The river probably has some symbolism passing through the water, like we pass through the waters of baptism. Circumcision was a reminder of God's covenant promises in Abraham that now were being fulfilled Hundreds of years later. And the Passover, much like our Lord's Supper. In fact, the Lord's Supper was instituted on Passover night. And Passover got a a new focus from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And it is a service to do what? That we might remember. Every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this blood, you 
recall. You remember what God has done for you. And remembering does wonders for the soul. When's the last time for your devotions you just sat there and remembered what God has done for you? Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and you will be surprised what God has done. So Passover is reinstituted, but there's something else that also happens that I think is really neat, and that is that the manna stopped. Did you see that? The day after, they celebrate the Passover. This is chapter 5, verse 11. That very day, they eat the produce of the land, which is what? Verse 6, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land of Canaan was called the promised land. There it is in verse 6. And it's described as a bounteous land filled with wonderful produce. And now they're eating the produce of the land and the manna stops. And I bet you all of Israel said, amen. Sick of that stuff. 40 years or 38 years they've been eating this. Isn't it interesting? The manna looked like milk and honey, but it was not the real thing. The people of God were sustained by the manna, but they were not satisfied. You and I can be sustained by the things of this world at times, and we can partake of things that look like Christ, but we won't be satisfied because we were made to be filled with God. And only when we are filled with the glory of Christ and saved by his finished work on the cross can we find true satisfaction. Oh, I tell you, in Christ, you're eating the milk and honey, the best there is. Simple obedience to God would have given them this experience and enjoyment 40 years before. But as it says in Psalm 106, they soon forgot what God had done, and they did not wait for his counsel. In the desert, they gave in to their personal cravings. In the wasteland, they put God to the test, so he gave them what they asked for, but sent leanness to their souls. That's the old King James. The NIV says he gave them a wasting disease in their bodies. <laughs> we have so much coming from Christ, not only to sustain, but to satisfy. To fill our hearts with joy and our mouths with singing. And we are content with the manna. By the way, the manna is only a picture of the true bread that comes from heaven, John 5 tells us, which is Jesus. So we feast on him, and that's the symbol of the Passover made new in the Lord's Supper. So this is the business that's more important, that the entire nation would renew the covenant with these wonderful ceremonies of circumcision and Passover as God had commanded his people to do. But there's something else. And this is where Joshua now personally has to be challenged. Where Joshua is going to have a personal encounter with the captain. The NIV calls him the commander of the Lord's army. Verse 13. 
Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, this is a very interesting Hebrew word. It means to be very close, kind of an intimate closeness. Gilgal was two miles away. That's quite a distance. It's hard to see two miles away. And Oswald Sanders, in his little book, Robust of Faith, tells us that Joshua got up in the late night not only to seek his God, but to spy out Jericho before they attacked. So it's very possible then that Joshua got very close to Jericho, that he appears to be alone, working his way to an elevated spot where he could look at the land. He's alone. And verse 13 says, while he was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. I, I can't describe the man. I can only guess that he could have been in full armor. And the drawn sword, as warriors are told to do, turn it so it glistens in the sun or the moonlight. Let him see the steel and let them see the blade what would you do if you were all alone in the enemy territory and you went out by yourself for a little meditation and a little strategy and you look up and here's a warrior with a drawn sword over you it's very simple i would run i would bolt but not joshua he was told to be strong and What's that word from chapter 1? Courageous. <laughs> and that's exactly what this guy is. Verse 13. Here's this man with a drawn sword. I imagine the adrenaline is pumping through Joshua's body. And he goes up to him. I'm guessing with drawn sword. <laughs> and says, are you for us or against us? Now, he has to know that he's not one of the soldiers from his own army. And maybe he thought that this was a guy from Jericho on night patrol. And so he asked this amazing question. Are you for us or are you against us? And the man says, neither. <laughs> That's a dumb answer. Not really a dumb answer because as we'll see, it's someone important who's saying it. But I would say, what do you mean? Take your side. You live in Michigan. Who are you for? U of M or Michigan State? I'm neither. It's the Civil War. Who are you for? The North or the South? I'm neither. Heard of one guy who wore a blue top and gray pants and both sides shot at him. Take a side. Are you for us or against us? And the man said, neither. That was his answer. But as commander of the army of Jehovah, I have now come. What's going on here? It's as though the, the commander is saying, the question is not, am I on your side? The question is, are you on my side? I'm the commander of the army. Have you forgotten that, Joshua? Oh, it's so easy for leaders to forget who's in control. The head of the church is 
Jesus. No one else. There's no human being at all who is the head of the church except Jesus Christ. Now there are people put in positions of leadership and there may be something of a hierarchy among those leaders, but there is no head of the church except Christ. And pastors began to think that they're leading the show. And occasionally they need a wake-up call to remind them who's in charge. And this, my friend, is a wake-up call. You see, the commander of the Lord's army has not come to take sides. He's come to take over. <laughs> He's the captain. And so you and I need to understand that in our life there will be those spiritual moments before our earthly battles where God reminds us that we are not in control. You think you are. I think I am. No, no, I get it. You, you've dedicated yourself to the Lord. You're having morning devotions. You're memorizing the word. You're walking in the power of the Spirit. But you don't realize how often you think you've got this. I've got this. I can do this. And God says, oh, really? Give it a shot. And after we fail, we come back and recognize that God is God and we are not. Now before Joshua fails, the commander wants Joshua to know that he's not come to take sides, he's come to take over. The most significant moments in our lives are moments when God reveals himself to us and we have a divine encounter. Now the question we may ask ourselves is this, who is this man as he is called? And I think the answer is quite clear. This is what we call a theophany, an appearing of God, theos God, and the idea of an appearance of God. Or may, maybe more specifically, a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. The first time Jesus came to this earth was not as a baby born in Bethlehem. He often comes as the angel of the Lord, which is a phrase used about 50 plus times in the scripture. Sometimes God comes as a human being like he did, or in the appearance of a man, like he did in Genesis 18 to Abraham. Sometimes he comes in an unusual appearance like a voice. When Jesus was baptized, there was a voice from heaven. When Moses was commissioned, there was a bush that did not was not consumed in its burning, but spoke. The captain of the Lord's host is none other than God. Because he said, take off your shoes, Joshua, which is the very thing that God told Moses at the burning bush. Take off your shoes. That was not only a reminder that God is with Joseph like he was with Moses or, or Joshua, but it's a, it's a reminder that God is God. And he says later on that he is the captain or the commander of the Lord's army. And when you get into chapter 6, He's simply called Jehovah. And then get this, Joshua, when he saw him, fell down and worshipped. 
He fell down, face down, verse 14, in reverence. And that's what you do in the presence of God. This was designed to embolden Joshua, to reassure him, to inspire him, and to humble him, and to reorient him to the fact that God is in control. And then, as you look at this passage, not only do we see his identity, but we feel our need. You and I are not called to do the very same thing that Joshua is called to, but you and I are called to serve God. We're called to proclaim his kingdom. We're called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And we have needs before we get into our service. Needs that can only be met in the most profound sense when we see God. That's our first need. We need to see him. And when we do, we bow. There was a man who one time was telling John MacArthur, popular Bible teacher, he said, I had a vision of Jesus the other day. I, I saw him. He appeared to me in visible form and spoke to me in audible voice. And John said to this man, well, when did this happen? He said, it happened while I was shaving in the bathroom. While you were shaving in the bathroom, Jesus appeared, visible form and audible voice. Yes. What did you do? The man said, I kept shaving. And John rightly said, then it wasn't Jesus. Because if that's Jesus, you're on your face. Stubble and all. Revelation chapter 1 tells us when John the Apostle, this guy who outlasted all the other apostles, sees Jesus. Read about it. With the flaming uh, hair, the white garments, the voice like uh, the, the sound of Niagara Falls. When he sees him, he falls at his feet. And you and I need to do more bowing before our precious Lord and acknowledge every day, I'm not God, you are. We need to see him. Remember the story in Genesis 16 when Sarah couldn't have a child, so she gave her handmaid to her husband Abraham and Hagar bore a child, Ishmael. Remember that story? And then Sarah was jealous and kicked Hagar out. Hagar went running with her little boy. And we read in Genesis 16, she put her son a distance from her because she didn't want to see him die. And God appeared. And Hagar gave a name for God that is a beautiful name. It's E-L-L-Roy, R-O-I. Not Elroy, but Elroy, which means the God who sees me. And in Genesis 16, 13, I have seen the one who sees me. That's a great verse. 16, 13 of Genesis. Have you seen the one who sees you? I'm not talking about seeing a literal form. I'm talking about seeing with the eyes of faith. And knowing that he is real, that his presence is with you, that God is aware, that you are aware of his reality and of his 
imminent presence. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha prayed that the Lord would open their eyes so that they could see the unseen world and all the support that the army had. And you and I need to see what is there that we cannot see. Every day we need to see God by faith. Make that a regular part of your spiritual devotions. Ask the Lord to show himself to you in a real way. Reality is greater unseen than seen because the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. We need to see him. Secondly, we need to hear him. Understand this. Joshua found it out. The sword was not against him. The sword was not raised to attack him. The sword was raised to help him. I'm here to take over. I'm here to fight your battles, Joshua. Oh, that we could see in all of life's battles the raised sword of Jehovah on our behalf standing next to us. And we need to hear him say, this is a holy place because I am here. Take your sandals off. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, What's the rest of it? It doesn't make any difference who's against us. Right? Who could be against us that could stand up to our mighty God? Hear him say, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. By the way, I love that psalm, Psalm 16, where David says, I foresaw the Lord always at my right I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand. That's close. I shall not be moved. And then the last verse of Psalm 16 says, and I shall be at his right hand forevermore. Never leave the presence of God. And hear him speak. This is a holy place because I am here. And then we need to respond to him. So Joshua said, what's your message? What do you have to say to your servant? And by the way, when you bow before someone and acknowledge their commander and your servant, you're acknowledging their superior status. And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And get this, Joshua did so. Now, this is not only an act of obedience, take off your shoes, but as we mentioned, it reminds us of what God said to Moses. I am here, and this place is holy. By the way, I hate to burst your bubble, but there's nothing holy about this worship center until you come in because you bring the presence of God with you. Until we gather, and then God is here and that to bless. It's dedicated for a holy purpose, but this is not a holy place until God is here. Our terminology has caused us to think that there are sacred places, sacred by the fact that they were dedicated for a certain purpose, but they're not holy until God is there with a message. Now get this. When Joshua first got his commission in chapter 1, Remember verse 3, God said to you, I'm giving you this land, 
every place where the sole of your foot lands is yours. Remember that? Suppose you were going out to buy a piece of property and you're talking to the owner and you say, how much of this property do you want to sell? He says, every place that you walk on, I'll sell to you for this price. Wouldn't you go crazy? <laughs> Start running over everything. First you'd work a perimeter and then you'd begin to walk in it, you know, and go back and forth as though you were mowing the, the territory. You wanted your foot to be on every place. This is only a guess, but could it be when God said to Joshua, you're not in control, I am, I'm the captain, take off your shoes. The sandals that you're going to use to place on the property to be obtained, maybe he's saying I'm going to conquer Jericho and all of the land through you. In fact, I'm going to do it in your shoes. Take them off and let me stand in them. Because we're mere instruments in the process. And this mystic encounter that, that Joshua has with God is, a, is the final personal preparation for the battle to come. And in all of our spiritual battles, in all of our physical battles and earthly difficulties, there is a spiritual battle to be fought and the presence of God to be gained. And when we have that presence, we can go forward. And Joshua did so. The people were circumcised. They celebrated Passover. They crossed over what appeared to be a dangerous river situation in faith. And now Joshua just says, yep, okay. Your sandals are mine. History shows that in our hour of crisis, Oswald Sanders says, God always reveals himself to us as the complement to our present need. In our hour of crisis, God reveals himself, himself as the complement to our present need. Joshua, without, con, without question, conceded absolute control of the army, demonstrated implicit obedience, his own strategy and tactics forever renounced, or at least secondary. One personal victory gained in secret can turn the fortunes of a whole nation and we're going to see one sin can also turn the fortunes of a whole nation when we get to Joshua 7. He came to view the battlements of the enemy, but instead he saw the com commander of his army. And before he was equipped to face the foe, he must stand before God. And what a burden was lifted from his shoulders when he realized that God was going to fight for him. That's what we don't get. We try to battle on our own, but God says, I will fight for you. The battle is no longer yours, but the Lord's. Amy Carmyle Carmichael, in poetic fashion, said, How can we fear when God is near to meet our need, though great indeed? We rise to go to meet our foe, who wickedly clever is weary never. We faint and cower, yet God's our tower. We answer his call, dedicated soldiers all. 
The scriptures declare this war is his affair. The presence unseen as air upon the field. He's there. And so the great lesson to be learned in this fifth chapter, among many lessons, is this. If we want to be successful in fighting the battles of our life, we must see the captain of our salvation. We must hear the captain of our salvation. We must recognize he's fighting for us and he is right there with us. And we must yield all control to the commander-in-chief. And then the battle is ours. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how amazing is your word that gives us encouragement, insight, that convicts us of sin and draws us to repentance, that is to acknowledge our sin and turn from it, and calls us to find fresh forgiveness in your mercy through the work of Jesus on the cross. And from there to rise up to meet our foe, clever though he is, and never willing to give up, you are our tower, our place of defense. And the Bible declares that this war is your affair and that you are there to fight it for us. Lord, lift the burden off of some shoulders today of your dear people who are being crushed under whatever earthly battle they're facing. And soon they've thought about giving up. Oh, Lord, let them see the man who stands with sword drawn, a sword, sword drawn is not there to kill, but to fight on their behalf. In your name we pray, amen.